0: You're listening to the Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tail that affects us all.
1: Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. In the world of espionage and spying, how many threads are frayed? On this episode, the author of The Matchmaker and The Mercenary, Paul Vidich, returns to discuss his latest novel, Beirut Station. This is what uh, Publishers Weekly wrote, and I concur. This taut, nuanced spy thriller further established Vidich as a new master of the genre. And Paul Vidich, welcome back to the program.
2: Thank you. Welcome to be here.
1: So that you're the first three-time guest. I am honored. Thank you so much. <laughs>
2: well, I guess that's a trifecta.
1: It really is. We should have played the numbers today. Maybe we'd have won something. So I, I want to jump in right away, if you don't mind, because are there parallels between what's happening with Hamas and the Israelis and the story that you portray in Beirut Station?
2: Uh, well, let me just start off by saying that the, the Middle East has been a um, source of tensioning conflict since Roman times. And, and after that, it was the Ottomans and then the French and English moved in. And since Israel became independent in 1948, there have been eight wars, numerous, you know, conflicts and, and uprisings. And so, in some ways, I was drawn to the area just because there is all of this, um, you know, this history of conflict, and it's in conflict that you find interesting stories. Um, having said that, uh, you know, my my novel is not really about the 2006 Israeli Hezbollah war. My novel is really about some individuals. Um, who get caught up in a war. And it's also about something else, um, which I'll call uh, sort of revenge, but it's institutional revenge, which the term for which is usually extrajudicial execution. It's a situation in which, you know, a head of state, um, Bush, for example, can make a finding in which um, the finding is that it's, it's appropriate to deploy the CIA with Mossad to take out a terrorist. So in some ways, the, the, the story I'm telling is about a particular type of conflict, uh, but it's set in the Middle East, and the, there have been just a, a sad and tragic series of conflicts between Israel and its neighbors. Um, my story is not about that. But it's about um, individuals, a young, two men, three men, and a young woman who get caught up in an uh, effort to take out uh, Hezbollah uh, terrorists. So I'm going
1: to kind of move to a slightly different area because this fascinates me. I believe in the world of publishing. You need to get the book out there. And the point of purchase for me is the book cover. As I mentioned before, this is the third time that you've been here, Paul. The first time, I think, was for the mercenary. Second time is for the matchmaker. And the third time is for your new book, Beirut Station. And I noticed something subtly different. And I wonder if your publisher, which is Pegasus, has elevated you in their status as terms of a terrific storyteller. Your name is as big as the title of the book for the first time. And maybe that's something that means nothing to anybody else. But to me, that says you now have elevated status as a writer, based on what your name is in terms of the title of the book.
2: Uh, I, I haven't had that conversation with Pegasus. Um, I I actually didn't notice that uh, they were the same type font. Um but yes, it's, it's you know, people go into a bookstore and they, they're they drawn to something they recognize. If they recognize the author's name, like, for example, Lee Child, right. you know, in his books, Lee Child is often bigger than the name of the book because they're not really buying the book. They're buying Lee Child's book. And um, so um, thank you for... Um, Bringing that to my attention. (laughs) In in the film world, there was always a period of time in which um, the director was not a particularly important part of the production. This is the old studio system. The person who broke out of that was Frank Capra, and he named his biography, his autobiography, the name above the title. Because it, it indica- when he was able to claim his name above the title of the film, he had reached a certain apex uh, in his career recognized for his contributions.
1: Well, I'm going to say this. Well, welcome, welcome to your latest apex as you reach out. Because I, know, I mean, I know Nelson DeMille very well. All Nelson has to do is put his name on the book, no matter what the title is, and the book is going to sell. So it says to me that you're reaching that stratosphere Well, your name is as important as the book and what's inside the covers. So this is what I want to kind of address with you. Your characters, you can go into depth about this, have to navigate a lot of situations on the ground based on the events of the day. As a writer, Paul Vittich, from start to beginning to the book gets in my hands, the people hear these interviews, what did you have to navigate?
2: So it's always a complex process of finishing one novel then feeling this void, (laughs) things you've spent a year, a year and a half working on characters that have inhabited your imagination, that you wake up to every morning, are suddenly no longer there. They're off into the world and, you know, you you don't have any influence on the way that people are going to read them or take, you know, take them in. So th- th- in that void, you be- I begin to, to think about what I'll write about next. And it's, it's a complicated process, but invariably, I sort of start with setting. And setting is important because it's, it's, it's a sense of place. And it's almost always the case that when you look into the reasons for somebody to be in a particular place, right. you begin to understand who those people are. And so in in Beirut, putting people in Beirut, which at the time was sort of a conflicted uh city, uh, and a city that over time um ha- had been a sort of listening post for, you know, Mossad, for the CIA, for MI6, you sort of begin to think about what could take place in Beirut. And and I hit upon the the 2006 war, largely because it was bookended. It was a 34-day war. It was bookended by, um, you know, the the initial bombing and then Condoleezza Rice's effort to to bring peace. But what struck me about it was the evacuation of the foreign nationals. And and that was sort of a really interesting image in my mind. And I don't know if you... um, Ever, um, there's a book that was based in Shanghai in 1938, um, The Empire of the Sun. Oh,
1: it's a great movie.
2: It's a great movie, but it's this magical book where a prominent scene takes place in the um, uh, in the port where all of these foreigners are being evacuated from the city. And and I sort of thought, wow, I've got a modern <laughs> situation that's equivalent, which is when 15,000 English, French, German, American were evacuated from this port city, and and all, all these things began to resonate in my head, and and I'd also at the same time been very interested in this notion of you know extrajudicial executions. Because um, there's a very there's a moral element to that, an ethical element to that, and and most of my books deal with one or another ethical question that um, characters are forced to confront. And in this case, you know, I think the ethical question is, to some extent, you know, what who determines what justice is? Who's the one who's um, you know able. To sort of authorize the execution right. of somebody, it um, may be a criminal. And then the, the 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 next aspect of that is: um, do you forfeit your claim to justice if your actions, your violence, are out of proportion to the original crime? And it's this whole ancient question of justice and revenge, which. In my mind, is is one of the um, unfortunate, um, you know, aspects of the, the enduring conflict in the Middle East. What, um, I, and it, it, I... and frankly, it also comes back to a, to you know, Aeschylus's Oresteia, which is his wonderful Greek um, trilogy of revenge plays, which I had been reading at the same time and. And to me, that the, those plays definitely had an influence in the way I structured this novel.
1: In fact, that quote's in the beginning of the book, so you really set everything up. I want to explain to you, and you can respond after I'm done, why this book for me goes way beyond the pages and what you did. I'm going to share some personal experiences. I interviewed both of these people in the early 2000s. The first one was Roy Arkakian, wrote the book called The Land of No, A Childhood Caught, Revolution Iran. And the second person I spent a lot of time with, because I'm thinking about their characters and how this book became more important to me based on the conversations I have with these people in the past. The second one is Dr. Walid Faris, who is Lebanese and was involved in 1983 working with the, the Christian militia, advising them, and deeply involved, and finally left the country after the Civil War and came to the United States in 1990, and later became an advisor to Romney and later Trump as a Middle East advisor. And I think about him because what I learned from him was about jihad and revenge, he gave us a lesson in the Sunni Shia discourse and breakdown, which really goes back to who's the rightful heir to Muhammad. So when I'm reading this book based on talking to these people years ago, it gave me greater appreciation for what you did with the narrative and how you brought me along as a reader to say, Boy, that really resonates with me
2: well thank you i I appreciate that I mean I did a lot of historical research because I wanted to get the culture right I wanted to get the characters right I wanted to get Beirut right um, and, and and so most of what i most of the research I did doesn't appear in the novel, but it is there sort of as as sort of a is a a tone a a quality of the background, just sort of a, sort of the presence of the, the the conflicts and the presence of the, of the culture. Um, and the intent was to make it, uh, sort of invisible, but, but there, um, you know, in the same way that if you're walking down the street in New York, you're not really thinking about the fact that you're walking down the street in New York, but you are, in fact, taking in the sights, the sounds, the smells of the city, and you're sort of aware of it. And that was really what I was trying to do with my characters, to make the reader feel like they were in Beirut, you know, experiencing the jasmine, experiencing the right, right. call to prayer, experiencing, you know, the, the smells uh so that when you come away, you think, "Well, so this this writer actually knew the city really well."
1: Well, the city was and once was called there. was once called the Paris of the Middle East. That's one of the yes. tragedies how that ended, and look what it became. And I don't know what's happening now because they're back in the news again because Hezbollah potentially get involved in the northern flank of Israel. So once again, what goes around comes around, and right now we we're dealing with the fog of war but certainly things can happen in a very dramatic fashion in a very short time of frame.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the wars there have been savage and barbaric, and, you know, the the losers are all the innocent people. Uh, It's been very painful to watch what's been going on in the last few days.
1: I'm Um, going to go back to something that was written many, many years ago. W.E.B. Du Bois said, he addressed in some of his writings, something called Tunis. And I think this is applicable to some of the characters in your book, especially Annalise. This aspect of Tunis i am this, but I'm also in something else. And how do I wrestle with this split in my life, my own personal tuness?
2: Right. Yeah, I, I I gave her this conflicted personality. You know, I saw her as sort of the. Post nine eleven generation, somebody who was called to service after that tragedy and took up, you know, her patriotism and wanting to um, go off into the world and and make a difference. However, once she she was put into the field, um, she discovered you know the the difficulties, the emotional difficulties, the moral difficulties of doing that sort of covert work. Right. And it put a lot of stress on her, um, put a lot of stress on her marriage, um, and it forced her to, to grow up and, and to confront some of the hypocrisies that she saw in front of her. And in some ways, it's a coming-of-age story for a young woman who you know grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and discovers the the brutal nature of the world we live in, and and by that I mean, you know, America has enemies that want to do harm to us, and it's naive to think anything else. And the CIA's job is to deal with those enemies, and uh, and and a lot of what we what we understand about the CIA is that um, is stuff we don't really um, read in the press. But um, when you're a young woman and then you sort of come to this realization and you have to make your own ethical and moral um, decisions um, when you're confronted with this, uh, with these choices, you know, I found that a very interesting um premise to explore in in her character.
1: So let's reset. This is the Artful Periscope podcast. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest for the third time, he's really quite brave coming back for a third time, is Paul Vittich. The book is called Beirut Station. So you mentioned the CIA. One of the other interesting aspects of this book, there's an operation going on in terms of an assassination, which you've addressed, and involve a Mossad and CIA And I mean, though they're going after the same person, they seem to have different goals and conflicts. And I thought the way that you rendered that also is really, really interesting because it makes us think about the world, the shadow world that we don't know anything about, but we're really fascinated by.
2: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I tried to create characters that were three-dimensional and, uh, the, the Bauman character, um, I was intrigued by as he's a uh, probably in his thirties. He he was Lebanese Jew whose father was murdered by um, basically a Hezbollah precursor. Then he and his mother were forced to leave uh, Beirut, went to South Africa, and then he comes back. And as part of his mission, official mission, Um, he's also got this side, um, gig, which is to track down and kill the men who had murdered his father. And of course, in the course of the 25 years between the death of his father and when he returns, these, these young, young men now become very successful. Right. And so, and so, you know, and yet, it, for him, the you know the curse of the land is you know the act of revenge, and and there's this, and, and of course, he goes after people whether or not they were. He has the evidence against them, and and this is there's a a line that I spent a lot of time with uh, because it sort of to me, represents the the moral foundation of the book. Which is that uh, one character is talking about this guy Bauman, and he says he forfeits sympathy, sympathy and a claim to justice when his acts of revenge were more wicked than the score he wanted to settle. And to me, that that sums up, you know, the, the this whole notion of the cycle of violence. When does it stop, you know? And in the Aristea, the last play, it stops when the Furies, who are these ancient forces, right, right. are basically, you know, banished and sent underground, and Athena, the god of war, um, comes in and and sort of creates a civilization, and and it, you know, it's a it's a wonderful play, and and when you read it in the context of the Middle East, it, it sort of says all sorts of things because when you look at the history of conflict in the Middle East in the last 50 years it seems endless and it's barbaric and it, it it and both sides you know are wrong and both sides are right and it's a it's a you know it's a it's a maddening situation for sure and it's terrible because the people who who are the victims here are the innocent people, of which most of them are innocent. So here's,
1: here's the great irony getting beyond the book. And I've thought about this and I've talked about this in terms of the Semitic people in the Middle East, although the Iranians or Persians, that they have a chance, it's not hyperbole, to create the new Garden of Eden. The cooperation between the Israelis and the Palestinians and all the powers-to-be creates something that will be lasting and special, and all the people on all sides of the issues will benefit. But they can't get past right now the cycle of violence, which I call
2: really the blood feuds. Right, exactly. It is that is what it is. And it comes down to land, you know. <laughs> so much of, of the history of the Middle East is land. Um, and you know, the way that land has been carved up and divided. You know, it was the Ottoman Empire at one point in time, and then they lost the war, and then the French and the English came in and, and they created Lebanon and they created Syria. They just drew, you know, right. perpendicular lines. Right. Through villages, through farms, and suddenly people who had all been in the same place no longer are part of the same country. So you could have been living in one place for all your life and have had three nationalities and three passports. Um, and the same is true, obviously, with the Palestinians and um, and the Israelis and the West Bank. You know, the, these are sort of political constructions that um, you know impose themselves on the lives of the the. People who
1: live there? Reason I mentioned earlier, Roy Akakian, because it's, there's damage, collateral damage, when you're forced to leave your homeland. And you really love your homeland, but circumstances on the ground force you to leave. And you never really leave your homeland in your heart, no matter where else you're living. And I think about Bauman once again, who was forced to leave his homeland. And there's a wonderful scene in the book. Where Annalise is waiting outside for him, and she decides to go into this old, old bookstore, and she comes across a 1914 map, and then Bauman comes in and then takes through the bookstore out to a basically a hidden Jewish cemetery. And what he shows her is really what I call, in many respects, the big, but also the small reveal about who he is and where he's coming from.
2: Yes, that was a very important scene for me because it, it, it sort of represents the, the tragedy of um, Lebanese Jews. Um, it had been this wonderful, open society um, that had drawn many Jews from the Middle East Uh, And then starting in the late 50s, um, they found themselves murdered, um, expelled. And Bauman, you know, represents that. His his interest in coming back is, you know, he goes to visit the home (laughs) where he had grown up, which is now, you know, lived in by a, a Lebanese family. And he says, you know, to to Annalise when he mentions this, he's like, I don't want to go back there. It's their home. You know, I'm happy to live with my memories. The memories of when I was growing up in that home are more powerful to me than whatever I could discover by going to the house that's now lived in by these this other family.
1: So I want to go to another oh, character, oh, and oh, the oh. character is Colonel Hamadi. And he said something that I latched onto. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, The West looks at us, talking about Lebanon, as a crime novel. I am a big fan of crime novels. When you wrote that, what were you trying to say to the voice of the colonel?
2: Just that the, and and that's a line that I sort of picked up from one of the the wonderful Lebanese historians. Um, I think the Middle East, and particularly in Lebanon, um, feels like the West. Doesn't understand it that that the 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 history of the region is seen through colonial eyes, right? And the the result is the deep history, the deep culture, the deep language, and learning um, is is overlooked, and and and, it, and it's and, and his sort of very indignant moral tone is an important part of you know how he sees um the west and how they see themselves
1: I want to jump way to the end I I don't want to do any spoiler alerts but this also in terms of the art and craft of storytelling I want to address with you and let's be honest I can't speak for you I can speak for myself I still wrestle with who I am what I'm about and the essence of my being. At the end of the book, you have two characters together that at the end, Annalise is wrestling with where she's going to go next because in a sense, she's been outed by the CIA in a very precarious situation. And what fascinates me about what you do, that I'm still thinking about, we never learn her real name. Right. <laughs>
2: Thank you for picking that up. <laughs> yes, it, it's uh, you know it's in some ways we all live, um, you know, with our secrets, and uh, and even when we have, you know, like people know our real name when I was an executive at, at uh, Time Warner, and you know, I'd go into an office, corner office, and conduct my business, but most of the people didn't really know a whole lot about me personally. So I was able to live that disguise of right. being a corporate executive. Right. Right. And we all live our disguises in one way or another. A, a name happens to be something that is a, is a, a, a handle on you. You know, it, it indicates sort of who you are, it may indicate, you know, where you were born. Uh, it may, and people take up names, listen to names, um, and make um, judgments about people by their names. And so to, in some way, she inhabited her, her cover. and And that was, you know, as I say at one point in the book, she was so deeply inhabited in her cover that that became who she was. And it was only later towards the end that she began to feel like this was a a form of imprisonment that she needed to, to to move beyond that, uh, that name and that cover to get back to who she thought she really was.
1: So let's reset one more time. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast awful Periscope. My guest, is Paul Vittich. His new book is called Beirut Station. I read your interview with Paul Simmel, or Simmel, depending on how he pronounces his last name. I thought it was terrific. I learned an awful lot. And one of the takeaways was, is your book a love story? And you said, yes, it is, because my reading is different. I get into the espionage and spying and the conflicts, and there's a very dramatic chapter where there's a shootout and a killing, and I'm thinking it's really cinematic. But let's talk about that interview, because in the interview you mentioned, we haven't talked about that, I guess an inspiration for you, the role of the William Buckley assassination.
2: Right. So uh, William Buckley was the CIA chief of station in 1985, and he was kidnapped by Hezbollah at that time. It was a guy named uh, Imam Mugani, and uh He was tortured. He was drugged, he was kept in confined, you know, extremely harsh conditions, and ultimately six months later, um, murdered. Um, And it was a traumatic event for the Central Intelligence Agency because throughout the Cold War, there was always this um, uh, recognition by the Soviets and by the Americans That while they knew who each of their spies were, no one was going to go after one of those spies. Because to do so would be to inaugurate, initiate, you know, a cycle of assassinations against each other. So you knew who the spies were, but you didn't do anything about it. The war on terror, however, changed that. There was nothing at stake. And so these uh, chief of station was sort of a symbol, an emblem of what you know Hezbollah hated. And by taking him out, um, it was sort of a vicious act that really traumatized um, you know, the CIA. And they then set out, basically, over the next 22 years um, to track him down and to kill him and that that incident was a you know a thing i looked into because it was it, it, it was a trauma for the cia but it also set in motion um, the way that uh, the cia and mossad worked together you know having a common enemy made them you know cooperative in this in this situation and he was a you know a fascinating this guy was a fascinating um william buckley was a fascinating guy you know Well, um, well well-liked, urbane, um, you know, highly decorated in Vietnam and, uh, you know, probably a very interesting person to have had a conversation with.
1: So, Paul, I'm going to ask you a question you can give a very honest answer to, that you're part of a unique club about writing thrillers and espionage books and spying. And in that club is Joseph Cannon who I love to death, and coming up as I.S. I. S. Berry, who I think you wrote about her book. Are you more comfortable having conversations with people like that who understand what goes behind the, the curtain and in the shadows? Or also, do you kind of accept the questions that get from people like me who are basically civilians who read the book, but don't have the depth <laughs> of understanding that you and some of your comrades have?
2: Well, you know, Joe... Who I have lunch with you know regularly uh is a civilian like you, and like me, it's just we happen to be writers who come up with characters and we enjoy telling stories um i s Barry is a little different because she was in uh the CIA um but if you if you uh, I have no doubt that the CIA she writes about was, was not necessarily the CIA she lived in. Um, because I think as a as a writer, you have to remove yourself from in a, the world you know in order to create the world you imagine. Um, and, and so and it's a it's an interesting question because if I were to sit down with Joe he and I wouldn't be having the conversation we're having it's 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 he's not asking me questions about my characters or about how I developed the story right. what the historical context is you know we may we may touch on writerly subjects but we talk about our lives or we talk about you know other things in the world um, but and that and they're enjoyable. This is also very enjoyable because it's fun to be able to spend time you know, with somebody who's read my book and who really uh, appreciates the work that went into it. Um,
1: so every Sunday the New York, New York, in the New York Times book section does a small Q&A with a writer. And the questions differ somewhat, but they're also similar. But the one question I really like is at the end, if you could have dinner with two or three other people, past or present, who would you sit down with? And for you, what would the meal consist of?
2: (laughs) Uh, I read that section of the Times, and uh, I also enjoy that. And I've wondered, you know, who would I sit down with? I I think somebody... You know, it'd have to be somebody who would be fun to talk to, um, and uh, and a lot of writers, are curmudgeonly and not so much fun to talk to. But I think F. Scott Fitzgerald would be interesting because um, he he was he, he had a lot of non-writing experience, right? And right. I get the sense that he would be a good storyteller. But you know, it's interesting. I've had. Dinners with some writers, um, in which we we do tell stories. And there was a dinner we had with, I guess, about nine months ago in New York. Me, Karen was here. Charles Cumming was here. Right. Joe Cannon and I and Dan Fesperman, it's all writers, basically writing spy novels. And it was fun to talk about things. But one of the questions that was posed to the group, because Mick Heron's wife, Jo, was there, is, so how did you meet? What was your, you know, origin story as a couple? And then (laughs) we each sort of talked about that. And it was a fascinating conversation, uh, which would be a conversation you'd have with anyone. But with each of us as sort of as writers, uh, you know, we, I'm sure we embellished (laughs) The actual
1: event. I, I would have loved to have been there and I'll tell you why because he's in my notes because his new book is out right now. I think it's called Secret Hours. I've watched yes. Slow Horses on television. It is amazing TV and I haven't read his books yet but when, when I have time I'm going to get his newest book because I think he's a terrific writer and storyteller.
2: Yeah and he has a particular vision of the world which is you know, he, he's taking people who are losers within right. MI6.
1: Which he talks about. Like, some,
2: yeah. Right. And so that's his sort of special uh, angle on, on writing espionage stories. It's not about heroes. It's about antiheroes, but not just antiheroes. Losers who end up, you know, being, you know, Sloppy and and, but being smart, Mm -hmm. and and it's and it's and I and his his writing, his um, there's an elegance and and comic effect to his his writing that I think distinguishes him, you know, among um, you know, contemporary authors of uh, spy fiction.
1: And cast is everything, and Gary Oldman captures that character the way you described him, and it's not easy to do, to go from written page to on the screen and watching Oldman portray that character, very, very smart, but his office is a mess. He is a mess. His life is a mess. Yes. But he's almost, I know, he's almost, well, he, I don't know how to explain. He's so different that you really gravitate to him. He's like Columbo in a sense.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's done, he, he is, um casting him was a brilliant a brilliant act so the last
1: thing i'm going to do is I'm going to turn it back on to you we always end at least i try to end every segment before we go to break about what did i miss what did i get wrong so in terms of the conversation something i left out paul Vittich, what did i miss and or what did i get wrong
2: now, i don't think you got anything wrong i think um it's, it's, a, it's a novel that operates at several levels. It's the personal level, there's a political level, there's the drama of the assassination. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I try and do is every scene has to do at least three things to move the many threads of the plot forward. And so it, it's a relatively short novel. It's about 75,000 words. Right. And right. many of the novels in this genre you pick up are 140,000 words. Um, and yet I think I am able to create a density of character and plot and story in fewer pages just by virtue of the fact that these. I spend a lot of time thinking about this before I actually start writing the novel.
1: Well, what I can say before we go to break is I guarantee anybody picks this book up, they will be moved along with everything that you do on the written page. Once again, my guest has been Paul Vittich. The book is called Beirut Station. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the Artful Periscope Podcast. Be right back.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. I want to thank, once again, Paul Vittage, the author of Beirut Station. Now, this is a podcast. The umbrella is, on a rainy day or a sunny day, it's about storytellers. And storytellers can come from very unique places. And I'm going to talk about a group that are terrific storytellers. They're marathon runners. And as we speak, for the first time, they well, not for the first time, there have been two new world records set. And I refer to this as like the runner not knowing what's going to happen from the starting line to the finish line. It's like the first-time author doesn't know when they sit down and start creating and writing the book and that whole process, the time it gets in the hands of people like myself and bookstores and podcasts and all media outlets. And this just happened recently because there's something called the Abbott World Marathon Majors Championships. And it involves these major cities throughout the world. It starts in the spring. Tokyo, Boston, which I ran a couple of times. London, which I was there as a coach for Leukemia Society. Took a group of runners to London to run their first marathon. Berlin, and most recently, Chicago, and coming up as we speak, New York City. And just like book publishing and promotions, both of those worlds are very, very competitive. Now, September the 24th, in Berlin, a runner, female runner from Ethiopia named Asafa ran a 211 hour, two, two, two hours, 11 minutes, and 53 seconds. Now, I remember, because I've been involved for running a long time as a fan, a participant, and a coach, that if you were a woman and you could break two hours and 30 minutes, you were world class. I also remember, because I've interviewed um, some Olympic athletes, marathon runners, Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter. And in those days, when they ran, if you could run 212 or under, you could be Viable to get a medal in the Olympics, gold, silver, or bronze. And this woman, two hours, 11 minutes, and 53 seconds, beat the old record by two minutes and 20 seconds, and it fascinates me about what the human body can do over a period of time where you don't have any limitations in terms of your capabilities. And it's the same thing for writers. So many people say, you can't, you won't, You'll never get to the public, and you can't give in to that. Because I, and I'm a big fan of track and field. And going way back. It was Roger Bannister, an Englishman, who was the first man ever to break four minutes mile, four minute mile. and he said People said, physiologically, impossible. And he said, he was a medical student, by the way, so he understood how the human body worked. And he said, no, it's not impossible. And that world where it came down and down and down. But somebody has to break the barriers for the first time. And just a few days ago, the record for the men was broken again in Chicago on October the 8th by a Kenyan named Kelvin Kiptum. He ran, once again, think about when I'm talking about Bill Rodgers and Frank Shorter, if you could break 212, you were world class. You were world class. In Chicago, he ran two hours and 39 seconds, which is unheard of. Beat the old record, for, uh, I think, for uh, another two minutes. Now, there was a special race set up with the record that he broke from another runner. I think he's also Kenyan named Kachogi. And what they did in terms of science and see what the human body could do They sped up – Nike got involved with this called the Nike Project, and they got involved, and they set up a closed course, and they allowed Kipchoge to have multiple laps, world-class athletes on each loop running with him, a vehicle he could see the time. He also had all the nutrition that he needed because that's all figured out in terms of the science aspect, the scientific aspect of intake of nutrition to keep you going. And he had very special shoes that were designed by Nike They were energy efficient. Now, this is not a world record, but think about when I'm talking about Roger Banners who broke the four-minute mile. Kipchoge broke two hours on this special course, and I think he ran like 159, which is like most people, if they can run a six-minute mile or seven-minute mile, it's amazing. These guys are running way under Five minutes a mile for twenty-six point two miles, and both runners and writers like the challenges of taking on difficult topics. When you're either talking about let's for argument sake like what's going on with geopolitics in the world and racism and everything else and book banning, and I think also some writers like to take it runners excuse me like to take it beyond. The challenge at 26.2 miles. I'd like to go even beyond. And I know this event because I ran it myself. The Pikes Peak Marathon is 28.2 miles, Pikes Peak Marathon. So you start at 6,000 feet and you go to, I think it's 14.1. Why is this race so unique? It's one hill up and it's one hill down. And I think about, you know, the riders that say, you know, I'm pushing this rock up the hill, up the mountain like Sisyphus. and I'm letting go. It's going to come running down on me again. But challenges motivate all of us. So I want to go back to the similarities between runners, marathon runners, and storytellings. There's preparation. There's research. There's practice. Even before you go to the starting line. Just like for the, the writer, they have to do their research, they have multiple drafts, they submit it to the publisher, they get feedback, what they call trusted readers, before they reach their finish line when the book is published. They also deal with, in terms of similarities, mental and physical demands. Yeah, it's it's hard to think about a writer having physical demands, but it can be very mentally stressful and physically stressful when you don't know the outcome till the book comes out. Now, why, in my mind, are runners storytellers? It's race day. You get to the starting line. Now, I've been in the starting line of Boston and New York City and a few other marathons, and as just this, you know, a motivated person. And I look at every mile as another chapter. You are writing your own personal story from mile one to mile two to 10K to half marathon to the famous wall of 20, mi- 20 miles, which is maybe a wall, may not be a while, to finally, especially in New York City, you're coming up to on the Green, back into Central Park, coming up that hill where it's so loud, you can't even hear anybody yelling your name and thinking. And finally... The story is over. So every runner, whether it's an elite runner like I just talked about or the first-time runners I used to coach, they are all writing their stories along the way. Now, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens once the race is over. And I can't speak for everybody, but I think it's true for a lot of people. It's something that happens um, in terms of depression. You have put much of this time and energy into the effort. You get to the finish line. Your book is now out there. It's published and, and you can't control it anymore. And in your mind, you may say, no matter if the accolades, accolades or whatever you look in terms of self-feedback, validation, you're going to say to yourself, and I understand this, what's next? That's always the thing that we all wrestle with. I'm going to leave this podcast and I'm going to get home And I'm going to say, geez, I should have done something better. Better phrasing, better rhythm, better questions. And I'm going to leave and I'm going to say, well, what's next the next time? Can I be better? Sometimes the questions are better than the answers to get past our own self-doubts. So, yes, this may be slightly offbeat. But... All of us inherently are storytellers. Till the next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. Consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisifaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at Larry Davidson's Productions.com. You can also find out about other author related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at SachemLibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: It's high, yeah to her kitchen church